we are in Philippians chapter 1, and uh, Philippians is uh, just full confession. Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I, I love this book of the Bible. I love Paul, and I love Paul's writing, and I think Paul's brilliant, and, and, and as a pastor, there's, there's a connection that I have with Paul, and one of the things I love about Paul is watching him mature as a pastor. And so Paul, as a young man, starts off as this incredibly feisty follower of Jesus who's going to break down walls. He's arguing with everybody. He's getting in fights with Peter around theology. He's kicking Barnabas out of missions trips. He's, he's like having all of these like feisty exchanges with everybody. He, it seems like he's yelling at everybody. <laughs> He's, he's getting after it. He's brilliant. He loves Jesus. He's got this veal and this, this zeal and excitement and, and all this passion around what he's doing. And then as he gets older, you just see Paul as this pastor who loves his people. There's a softening that happens in him. There's a maturing that happens in him. There's this beautiful thing where he says at the end of his life, bring Barnabas to me because he's useful to me in my ministry. There's this thing where he reconciles with the people that he had fought in his past, and there's this beautiful unity and shepherding and love that he has with the people that he served. And so for me, as a pastor, it's important for me to understand Paul's life. I can be a little feisty too. I can, I can get after it a little bit sometimes. And I am not a relational giant, I will admit that. Uh, but there's so much I can learn through the Apostle Paul and the work that he does. Um, he's a church planner. And Paul would go in and he'd plant a church. And he'd start a church and he'd stay with that church for a while. And then he'd move on to the next church. It would be like I stayed with you all for five years. And then all of a sudden I decided I'm going to go plant a church in Las Vegas. Because Las Vegas needs a church. Except there's not planes to get me back and forth from Las Vegas to here. And so I'm not coming to visit very often. And so the way that I would communicate with you all would be a letter. That the church was then entrusted to overseers and deacons and elders. It was entrusted to the next generation who began to lead that church. And Paul would pass on his wisdom. Now, what, the reason I love Philippians more than I love a lot of Paul's other letters is Paul doesn't yell at the, the, the church in Philippi. Like, if you read Corinthians, Paul's coming in hot. Right? Paul's like, I got some bones to pick with you people. I left, and you guys, this is all falling apart, and if you don't straighten up, I'm going to come back there, and there's going to be like a backhanded slap. Like, come on. Like, Paul's getting after it with them. In, in, in Philippians, in Philippi, Paul's saying, well done, guys. You guys are doing great. I'm so proud of you. Like, I'm so excited about what God's doing in you and what God's doing through you, and I'm so excited about the potential that you have. Philippians is like a, it's, it's like a picture of Christian maturity in a church. It's like a picture of what a mature church does. And you can tell the maturity of the church by the, like the, 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 the exhortations, like the things that Paul warns them about, but you can tell the maturity by the way that he encourages him. These are the things that you're doing well. This is what a mature body of believers should do. This is what a mature church should look like. And so I love this because it gives us a glimpse of what Christian maturity looks like when it's lived out together in community. 
There's lots of stories in Scripture. There's lots of passages in Scripture that are about individual Christian maturity. Like how I grow to be a mature father or husband or, or a faithful servant of God. How, how, how others can grow. And it's about individuality. Philippians is about maturity as a whole. And it really matters and it's really significant for you and for me. Um, so it starts with a simple Pauline intro. This is kind of the way Paul intros all of his letters. He gives kind of just the context. This is who I'm writing for. This is what I'm writing about. And he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy is Paul's disciple, a younger man who Paul has discipled, who's walked with him, who's grown into the leader that Paul wants him to be. He's taught him to do the things that he does in ministry. And Timothy has become this partner in ministry. And so he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, the God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Why is he naming them? Because they're the ones that have been entrusted with the church, right? The overseers and the deacons. They're the ones who are leading in his absence. And he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. I love this. Just this tenderness of a pastor. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I want to start with this idea, partnership brings relationship. Paul doesn't say like, hey guys, remember when we went to that sporting event and it was so much fun. He doesn't say, hey, remember that meal after house church where somebody cooked something amazing and we all laughed and we had a great time. He doesn't say, hey, remember how we're all the same? In fact, Ali talked last week about the foundation of the church in Philippi. It was the weirdest misfit group of people all connected, right? There's a jailer who's there because there was an earthquake. There's Lydia who's selling purple cloth. There's all, like, it's this misjointed connection of group of people that are all there, and they are not connected because they look the same, because they, they all like the same things, because they all do the same things. The connection, the relational foundation of who they are and what they do is their partnership in the gospel. It is partnership that builds relationship. We think sometimes that it's like proximity that brings relationship. If we're just together enough, then relationship's going to happen. It, 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 sometimes we think it's like if we like the same things, if we believe the same things, if we watch the same TV shows, eat at the same restaurants, talk about the same things, if we cheer for the same sports teams, if we, I don't know what it is, if we have the same commonalities, then we're going to build relationship. What Paul is saying is no, relationship is best built when we're partnering together to do something. It's when you're working together. It's when there's a common goal and a common vision and you need each other to accomplish it. It's not something we can do on our own. It's not something we can do individually. It's going to take the collective to do it. That's why at Grace Marietta, we don't have membership. We've said this from day one. Membership feels like membership has its privileges, right? Isn't that, is that a visa? What was that back in the day? Nobody remembers that ad. I'm just too old. American Express? Okay, thanks, Aaron. Somebody remembers it. Uh, it. It feels like membership is like I pay my dues, and because I pay my dues, I get this, this, and this. I get these things because I'm a member. 
We, we don't say you are a member of Grace Marietta. We say you are a partner at Grace Marietta, which means we are partnering together for the good of Cobb County, for the good of East Cobb, for the good of this community. We are partnering to, together to bring restoration and goodness to our community. And in that space, we need each other to do these things, and we need each other to walk through these things. So we value people for who they really are. We don't use people as stepladders to get where we want to go or to accomplish what we want to do. We, we spend time with people different from ourselves. We forgive each other readily and quickly when we've been offended. We refuse to bear grudges against one another. We stop running with complaints to everyone about our needs and about our desires. We stop lying and gossiping about one another, and we mutually submit to one another in love and co-discern what does God want for us, not what do I want. There are typically around 300 people at every gathering we have at Grace Marietta. There are around 500 to 600 people that call Grace Marietta their home church. Here's the problem with partnership. Other people. Like how many of you have business partners or somebody that you work closely with at work? Raise your hands. It's hard, isn't it? Uh, I've been playing pickleball because I'm old, and that's what old people do apparently these days. Uh, and so I've been playing pickleball, and, uh, and I don't like playing pickleball by myself because I'm old and I'm slow, and my knees and my ankles are not what they used to be. Uh, so it's much more fun to play with a partner. But the problem with the playing with a partner is your partner. Right? The problem with playing with a partner is like, come on, man. Like, you've hit seven balls into the net in a row. What's going on there? Like, the, 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 there's, it's a difficult thing when you try and partner with somebody to do something. You got to be on the same page. Like in pickleball, you got to move together. You got to both come to the net at the same time. You got to back off at the same time. You got to be in sync with what you're doing. And, and the problem when I play is always the partner, not me. Like, think about how hard marriage is. The hardest thing about marriage is that you've got to figure out, you want this and I want this, and how do we reconcile that? You want to go this direction and I want to go this direction, so how do we figure that out? And partnership is hard. I, I'm a terrible dancer. I'm the, worst, I'm the worst dancer in history. And I'm also terrified. I have this weird, like some of you have been around a while, you know, I have this weird phobia of dancing in front of other human beings. It's like, the, if you want to think about what would produce the most anxiety in me, it's like, turn on some music and expect Ben to dance. And some people think that's funny, and I'm like, no, it would actually harm me. Like, there, I don't know where in my life I have trauma around dancing. <laughs> I don't know what is that. I, like, maybe a therapist will work this out in me at some point. But I, like, I'm a terrible dancer. Dancing takes a partner. Right? Like all of these things that are good and that are wonderful in our life, they don't work unless we partner together. And Paul says the way that we get breakthrough is through partnership. The Greek word there is koinonia. Everybody say that with me. Koinonia. It, it means fellowship. 
It's a sharing in something. It's a participating in something divine and eternal. Something greater than what we could do on our own is, 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 is used by the collective to accomplish something big. There, it, it, it's this. This is really good. It's an intimacy that comes through working together. That's what koinonia is. It's an intimacy that comes through working together. Uh, one pastor said it this way, there are many places in the world where the church is not like it is in America. It is not a giant place where people come and watch others participate. It's a tiny embattled minority where there are no superstars. And when I see them, I think I'm looking at the future of the church in America as well. If those churches want to evangelize, they have to do the work themselves. In other words, the whole church is partnering together for the gospel, not a bunch of observers watching other people perform. Paul and the church of Philippi were not sitting on a pedestal. They were still involved in partnership in the gospel since the day their hearts were opened by a river and with an earthquake that hit a prison. They had not picked fights with one another. They had not left their first love. They had not become lukewarm. They had not allowed to division to destroy their direction Paul always prayed with joy for them because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This was the sign of God's blessing on them, that they continued to steadfastly partner together when there were enormous barriers everywhere to partnership. Partnership is a choice. It's what we choose to do. And our ability to partner together is proportionally linked to our ability to get kingdom breakthrough. Our relationships will in many ways determine our results. We know this when we talk to our kids, right? We, we talk to our kids and we're like, especially when they get in high school and we're a little worried about the bad influence or the, the peer pressure or something like that. We get with our kids and we're like, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me who you're spending time with now and what they're doing and I'll give you a roadmap for who you're going to become. But we forget that when we become adults some, for some reason. Like, we are, in many ways, the equivalent of the relationships that we have. We become like the people we're around. And we get to choose, who are we going to do life with? Is it going to be people that are going to lift me up and encourage me? Are we going to do the things that Paul says in all of his letters? Are we going to urge each other on? Are we going to pray for one another? Are we going to care for one another? Are we going to bear each other's burdens? We could spend months just using Paul's one another passages and talking about this is the life that we're called to live or is it going to be something different? Are we going to choose our own self-interest? Are we going to choose our own desires? Are we going to choose our own wants? Are we going to do our own thing? Are we going to bicker and fight? Are we going to gossip and lie? Are we going to throw shots at one another? Or are we going to forgive? This is the reality of the, of, of the calling of the church. And it is difficult to get five or 600 people to move in the same direction on anything let alone on the things of God and the faithfulness of God. My mentor was a pastor. Uh, he retired about 10 years into me kind of serving with him. Uh, and when he, he, he would always sit down with me and he said, you know, one day you're going to pastor a church. And he said this, you need to remember this. 90% of the people in the church are wonderful. They want to serve Jesus they want to follow you. They want to go where you're leading them. They want to care for you. They want to bless each other. 
10% of the people are weird and hard to deal with. They're just difficult. And 2% of that 10% are downright nasty, and they will be awful to you. And I've always remembered that. And then he looked me in the eyes, and he said this, don't you dare spend your time on that 10%. You spend your time on the 90. You spend your time investing and discipling in the people that want to go and want to be a part of it. Every sideways energy you have, spend it on the 2% is sideways energy that takes you away from the mission that God has called to you. You wipe the dust off your feet like Paul or like Jesus told us and you move to the next town when you find that 2%. You move to the next person. You find your people of peace and you invest there. And so in this space, it is difficult for us to walk these things out. So I want to give us some ground rules. I want to give us just some cultural pieces that we can hold over and say, hey, these are values that we have as a church that are not just embraced by the staff, that are not just embraced by the board, but are embraced by the entire church. And I want to throw out some things that I say, if we live this way, then the barriers get smaller. And it becomes easier for us to live in partnership. Um, we've been working on this for a few months as a staff. This is something that will now be shared every time somebody new comes to the church. They're going to hear these values. We're going to talk about these things. And we're going to share these things. And I want to share them kind of for the first time uh, with you guys today. The first is this. And, and this, is a, this is a line that is used on our board meetings all the time. I don't know which of our wise board members brought this up. It was Ryan Tuttle or Hardin Byers or, or somebody kept saying this phrase. And it's been one that we've embraced over and over again. And it's simply this. Fill the gap with trust. And it means this. If you don't know the answer... Until you find it out, fill the gap with trust. Don't start creating a narrative that something terrible has happened when you don't know that something terrible has happened. Don't start a story about something bad that has gone on if you don't actually know what's happened. Fill the gap with trust. And it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to go and say, hey, what happened here? What's going on here? What, 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 what was going through your mind when this happened? What happened in this space? What, what's going, all of those things are fair questions to ask and should be asked. But until that time, fill the gap with trust. What happens is something happens, and we all of a sudden start jumping to, to, to applying motives on other people. You guys know this is true in marriage, Right? Something happens and you start applying all these motives to your spouse that aren't there. And you're like, well, she just doesn't think about me. She just doesn't. And you're going down this hole and you're spiraling and you're getting all upset. We do the same thing in the church. Something goes on. They, we, 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 we did something. Your favorite coffee wasn't there that week. We didn't sing the song that you wanted to sing. The pastor said something that I'm not quite sure I agree with. The, somebody didn't notice that I was sick for two weeks. Like, there's all of these different things, and we all of a sudden start jumping to all of these, well, I bet they just don't care about people. They don't care about humans. They're just doing this to get rich, because the church would be the strategy for that if somebody was doing that. 
Like there comes all of these things where we just start guessing. And, and so here's what I want to encourage you to do is between the space when you find the answer, assume the best. Trust in good intentions. The, I, I, I know that there are a lot of stories about broken cultures and churches right now all over the place. And it's true. It's happened in a lot of spaces. And we have placed so many safeguards around our church so that we don't become like one of those other stories. There is accountability at all levels. There are structures that are built at all levels so that those things don't happen here. And if you would let us tell you what those are, I think you'd feel comfortable with them. But don't go and make assumptions that this is one of those places. I've said this about grace since the day I arrived here. There are cultures that you're around where the closer you get to the center, the more you know how the sausage is made, the more you don't want to eat it, right? And there are cultures where the closer you get to the center, the more you trust it. And the more you say, this is not a perfect place. These are not perfect people. But they are doing the very best they can to be faithful. And that's been my experience with grace. Secondly, is if you need something or want something, ask for that something. I, there are 600 people that call this place their church. It is not reasonable for you to imagine that I know what's going on in 600 people's lives and I know what they need and what they want. It's not reasonable to imagine that the staff knows all of those things. It is reasonable to know this. We love you and want to serve you and want to give you what you want and what you need. If you need somebody to pray for you, we want to send somebody to pray for you. If you need somebody to have a conversation with you, we want to have a conversation with you. If you need somebody to open the word with you and talk you through a specific thing, we want to do those things. But we cannot do those things if we don't know that those things are wants or needs. This is how every healthy relationship in the, in, in the planet Earth hap, works, is you're not afraid to share what you want because you believe the people that you love want to give you what you want, right? That's how healthy relationships work. And so we have to be in a place where we can share openly, this is what I want, this is what I need, this is what I'm hoping for, and, and, and trusting that, that we want to help. So I can't read your minds. I don't, like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. I don't know all the inner, in, inner things that are going on in everybody's life. But we as a church want to help. And I also, just for my sake, I just want to say this. I, I think there is this mentality, particularly in the South, that the pastor is the one that you have to meet with, that the pastor is the one that has to be the one that is there, that the pastor has to do all of these things. 600 people is beyond my ability to do those things. When we first came and there was 50 people in the room, I knew everybody's names. I knew what was going on in all of their lives. When we get to a certain size, I can't do that. So we have a team of people. We have built a team that is available to meet with you. And so if I say, I, I, I get a lot of times where people call me and are like, hey, Ben, I want to meet with you. If I say, I can't this week, I really can't. And if I say, I want you to meet with Benton, or I want you to meet with Allie, or I want you to meet with Savannah, or I want you to meet with somebody else on our team, it's not because I don't love you. It's not because I'm not committed to my job. It's not because I don't love Jesus. It's not because I'm whatever it is, the story that's being told. It's because 
I'm doing other things. And I have to prioritize what's most important for the church as a whole. And there are a lot of things going on in the church that not everybody knows or not everybody sees. Third is, is go to the source. So if there's a moment where you need to fill the gap with trust, I want to point you to, towards Matthew chapter 18, which says, I go to the person that I have a problem with, and I speak with them, and I talk to them, and I deal with them out in the front. And I just say, this is what's going on, and this is what I need. So if there's something going on, don't write somebody else's script. Don't tell your kingdom community about it. Don't start uh, talking to everybody else about the problem that you have with this person or with the church. Go to the person. Uh, sometimes I think we like to have like a fall guy. And I, I hear this sometimes. It's like church leadership doesn't. And I always ask the question, who is church leadership? Is that me? Is that the board? Is that the staff? Is that all of us? Aren't we all leaders in the church? Like, who is that when you say that? Uh, go to the source. If there's somebody in this room that you're holding unforgiveness towards or that you're angry with and they don't know why you're angry or they don't know what the unforgiveness is needed, you got to go to that person and you got to talk to them. You got to deal with it. Don't deal with it by talking to everybody else about it. Go to the person and talk to them. That's what scripture teaches us very, very clearly. Number four is community is hard, so be willing to fight for it. Um, I just don't be too busy to spend time with one another. Like, I know that everybody's got tricky schedules and everybody's running around, everybody's working, everybody has priorities. But if we want to be a community like this church in Philippi, then we actually have to make space for that to happen. We have to make space for one another. We have to have room to have a meeting once a week where we encourage somebody. Like, can I throw out this challenge to everybody in the church? Could we just encourage one person in the church once a week? Like, how easy is this? Just, could you, in the next seven days, or, or, or in your prayer time, or in your spiritual disciplines, just ask the Lord every week, Lord, who do you want me to encourage this week? Who's the person that you want me to encourage? And, and just then do it. Just say to the person, hey, I'm willing to walk with you. I'm willing to talk with you. I'm willing to go in on this. And, and, and I, I, I want to encourage you. I see this in you. All of those things. Um, number five is don't be a consumer because it's not about you. Uh, one of the things that I've realized as a pastor is that you find out who somebody is when you tell them no. When people don't get they, what they want, something real happens in them. I had a meeting not that long ago where somebody wanted the church to do something that we didn't agree with and we co-discerned and we prayed about it and we talked about it and we said, this is how it's going to go. And the person said, well, here's the reality. If I don't get what I want, I'm going to dot, 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 dot. One of those things was I'm going to destroy your reputation and I'm going to tell lies about you. This is what happens when it's a consumer mentality, then the church is about me and this body exists to do what I want and to serve me. This church exists to give my kids great programming so that they're the most loved child on the planet. It exists to make me feel good about myself all the time. It exists to give me all that I need at any given moment. And if 600 people are all doing that, 
the church is a disaster. We've got to get to a point where we say the church exists for the world, which means we have to lay down our priorities and our desires and our wants for the good of the whole and for the good of the community. Our staff knows this. There are a few songs that we sing on Sunday morning. Angie is right here. And I hate those songs. <laughs> I hate them. I hate the words. I hate the theology. I, like, there's, there, I, I hate the rhythm of them. I do not, there are, and we sing them a lot. And there's a few people in the room who know, like, there's some songs that I don't like at all. And when I'm up here singing, there's people that are, like, looking at me laughing. And I'm just trying to worship the best that I can to songs that I don't like. Jesus, I don't like this song, but I really like you, so I'm going to choose to worship you. Right? Like, I don't even get what I want all the time. Like, that's how it works. Like, we're, this is not us just being consumers. It's so much bigger than that. Um, seven is, is the church staff, and I, I, I'm going to go in on this because I, I feel like this is important for our church in this moment. The church staff are people to be loved and honored and treated with respect. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. Uh, and there are all kinds of gossip and lies and untrue things that have been said in the last six months about our staff, and we don't get the chance to defend ourselves, and we're not going to fight back, but it's unfair, and it needs to stop. And I will say this just clearly. I am going to defend our church staff with the love of Jesus. If somebody comes at us with stuff that's untrue, I am going to say unequivocally, this isn't true. You need to stop. This is not honoring the people that serve you and work for you. Our staff is all underpaid. Our staff works long hours. Our staff cares deeply about every one of you. And our staff is doing the very best we can to love and serve this church. And that deserves honor and respect. And I ask that you do that. Uh, and lastly, I'll say this. We can't allow minor differences to cause major problems. So I want to ask everybody to be humble. Uh, when you study theology, there is this kind of belief of there are major issues uh, and there are minor issues. There are primary issues and there are secondary issues. Uh, and primary issues are the things that you need to say, we need to agree on this. We need to be in alignment around this. And secondary issues are things where we need to show grace to one another. So there are areas of scripture that are very clear. It's drawn out. It tells us exactly what we should believe in it. It tells us exactly what should happen. Topics like the Trinity, salvation by faith alone, the sinfulness of man, the need for forgiveness, Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and future return. All of these things are primary issues that we say these we are non-negotiable. We believe in Jesus. We believe in his death. We believe in his resurrection. We believe in his atonement. We believe that he's good. We believe that God's people are called to give their lives to him as a living sacrifice. We believe that all people are sinners in need of grace and that Jesus is the solution. These are primary issues that are non-negotiable for us. There are secondary issues. 
There are ethical issues. There are political issues. There are issues where the Bible is not fully clear on those issues. And our social media culture makes us believe that in order to be a part of a community of people, we have to agree about absolutely everything. And the reality is there's room for disagreements in this room around secondary issues. There are things that you can say, I believe this and I believe this, and we can still fellowship together, and that's beautiful, and it's good. There is no way 600 people are going to agree on every, like if I gave you guys a list of secondary issues, which I'm not going to because it'll fire some of you up and you'll be like, I'm leaving the church if that's a secondary issue, right? But if I gave you a list of secondary issues, like I would bet we couldn't even find four people to agree on all of those issues. Like there's all these different things, theology, ethics, like what do we believe about crazy things? We could talk about tattoos. We could talk about dancing. We, well, you know what? I read a book that my grandma gave me that said it's, that Christians shouldn't play cards together. You sinners who are playing Uno and Skipbo, you know who you are, <laughs> right? Like, like there are so many things that we could take and break apart. And, and here's the challenge. When every issue is a primary issue, there's always going to be conflict. So on primary issues, we need clear teachings and clear stances. Here's what I want to encourage you all. It's on our website. If you want to know what we believe, it's on the front page of our website. If you come to Welcome to Grace, it's the first thing that we hand to you. Here is what we believe. Here are our primary issues. Here are the things that matter the most. It's not hidden. It's not deceptive. It's right there. It's all. You can have all of it. It's right there from the very beginning. And on secondary issues, what we need is we need grace for one another. We need to be humble enough to listen. We need to be humble enough to have a big enough table that invites lots of people to that table. And we need to believe that God is good and God is gracious and that God is working out all of our salvations in his own way. And we want to encourage each other to lean in to who God has called us to be. And so I don't care if you disagree on some things, guys. I hope there's some heated theological debates around dinners in this church. I hope there's different perspectives on different things. But my greatest hope is that those things don't tear us apart. And those things don't destroy our fellowship and our relationship. Because here's the big barrier. Self-interest will always destroy kingdom interest. Self-interest will always destroy kingdom interest. So Paul goes on, verse 7. I've done enough of this. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long for all of, how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Um, and here's what I want to say. Mutual affection is a sign of maturity. Mutual affection is a sign of Christian maturity. Listen to what Paul says. I long for you with the affections of Christ. That would be super weird if I greeted Brian like that this morning. <laughs> like, hey man, I long for you with the affections of Christ, right? That is not something we probably say. It's not something that we probably greet each other that way. I don't know. Maybe we could try it, Brian. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. But in the midst of this, I, I do understand this. There is something beautiful that happens when we have a mutual affection for one another that says, I want you to thrive, and I want you to flourish, and I want you to win, and I want you to succeed, 
And I want you to be blessed. And I want you to experience the fullness of all God has for you. And so I mutually, I am cheering for all of those things for you. And if I can be an ambassador of any of those things in your life, I want to give you that. If I can be the bringer of grace or peace or wisdom or kindness or mercy or generosity or whatever it is that thing is, I want to do that thing. And so mutual affection, in some, in some passages, it's just kind of used as the word brotherly kindness. But I think it's bigger than that. I think it's this selfless attitude that says, I'm willing to put your interests above my own. I'm willing to sacrifice some of what I want so that you get what you want. I'm willing to care for you and bless you and spend time with you. And I'm willing to do all of these things in God's name. Lastly, sharing in God's grace and mutual affection is what creates community. So listen, guys, our church is not a perfect church. I have said this from the day that I became the pastor. If your hope is in Ben Hardman, you will be sorely disappointed. I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm a hot mess. I will say the wrong things. I have probably said the wrong things in the last 20 minutes. I will say the wrong things, I will mess up, I will disappoint. I ask for your grace and forgiveness when I do. But I do want us to share in God's grace together. I want to have grace for the people that make mistakes here. And I want the people, I want when I make mistakes here for people to have grace. I want there to be a mutual love and respect one another because that mutual affection, that, that desire to want you to win, and then that desire to forgive is what creates healthy community. Sometimes we think that healthy community is a community without conflict. Typically, a community without conflict is just a community that's hiding elephants in the room. A healthy community deals with conflict. If you're upset about something, we talk about it. If there's something that needs to be dealt with, we bring it out into the light so that God can deal with it. We pray about it. We discern together. We do the best that we can to be faithful, and we walk into it, and we care for one another in that space. We do all of those things because God is good. Uh, I got a picture here I, I want to show you. Um, these are my four best friends from high school. Uh, I tried to get my mom to send me a picture of us from high school, but we didn't have cameras at that time. It's just like a it would have been a really rough photo. So this is about 10 years ago. Um, these are my four best friends from high school. In three weeks, we're going to the Ohio State football game together, and we're spending the weekend together in Brown County, Indiana. Uh, we got a, like a little cabin there, and we're staying together. Uh, a lot of times, people ask me things like, what was the seed or the soil in your early life that led you to ministry? What were, the what were the environmental things that helped you? And, and I, I always point to the same things. My parents, my mom and dad love Jesus. They've been faithful to teach me the word. They're amazing. They're the biggest blessing that I have in my life is my mom and dad. I, I would say that my, uh, my pastors were amazing growing up. I preached my first sermon when I was in ninth grade it, it, to a church of 2,000 people. It was the worst sermon ever preached in the history of Christendom, right? There was, it was all heresy. There was nothing true about it. Like, I just, and then all of these people were like, oh, God has blessed you to preach the word. And I was like, 
from that he was <laughs> like like that was terrible uh they gave me space to lead and showed grace for me and and cared for me and then the other thing is i had this group of men in my life and have had this group of friends that has walked with me every step of the way and over the years there has been heartbreak where we'll text each other or call each other and say guys i i just need prayer because i can't figure this out or there's a real crisis in my family right now and i don't know what to do there's been lots of job changes uh what's funny about this group is a bunch of us have gotten others jobs in different places um, I've tried to hire almost all of these guys at Grace Marietta at one point or another. Like, there has been all of these different, like, we're helping each other and serving each other. There's been advice and wisdom passed down to one another. Uh, and so as I was pre preparing for this message, I was thinking about how excited I am to go hang out with these guys in a few weeks. Because there is a reality that your lifelong friends hit different. Am I right? Like, there's something about, like... We don't need to like try and rebuild some kind of relationship. Like I know these guys. I know they love me. I know they trust me. I, I, I know that I can be real. I know that I can be myself around them. I know that they're for me. There's something beautiful about that. Uh, and as I was preparing this week, I just started to think, Lord, who in our church is going to be in a picture like this 30 years later? What's the group of people that's going to say, none of us go to the same church anymore. None of us, uh, not one person, I don't think, goes to the same church. We live in different states now. We're separated by all of this distance, but we're brothers in Christ who cheer each other on in every way in all of our lives. And so who are the people in here that you are so committed to that you're like, listen, man, 30 years from now, I'm still with you. Whether we go to Grace Marietta or we go to a different church, whether I live in Atlanta and you live in Scandinavia, we're going to be talking to each other and hanging out. Paul ends with this, and, and, and I, we use this prayer often as a benediction. And he just simply says this, this is my prayer, and this is what our church, we're going to pray about right now, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you might be able to discern what is best, and it may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so if this is Paul's prayer, the only thing I know is to make this prayer ours. And the only way I know of how we deal with all this stuff and how we all lay down our self-interest and how we connect is that we, the only way we do this is through Jesus. We can't do this in our own strength or in our own power. The only way this works is through us submitting and surrendering to Jesus.